This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I gotta tell ya, it's been a minute since I've seen Dr. Stokes with her headphones on. Yeah, we haven't seen each other in our pod ways recently, have we, Katherine? <laughs> Mostly just, you know, late night phone calls about the clean electricity standard and... <laughs> whatever else is going on. (laughs) Are you trying to say that I'm uh, a one-track mind? Well, you know what my mother says, focus. You know what my mother says, focus. Follow one course until successful. I got one course. I'm following it. So don't get too excited because this is not yet the official start of season two. Season two is coming. But we wanted to pop back into your feed now with a really special live episode of the show that we just recorded. This is actually the first of two live episodes we'll be bringing you between our seasons. This first one is all about treating climate change like the global crisis that it is. We look at what's being done on the international stage to try to save us from the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And we decided to have this conversation with a really incredible expert and leader on this topic for such a long time, Mary Robinson. She was the president of Ireland from 1990 through 1997. And then she was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights from 97 to 2002. She's now the chair of the elders. She's a climate justice activist, a self-proclaimed angry granny for climate justice, actually. And she co-hosts the amazing podcast, Mothers of Invention. And we wanted to talk to Mary because she has spent so very much of her career thinking about how we advance human well-being around the world and how we solve the climate crisis with justice at the core. And we started out by asking Mary both a simple and a complex question. What is this thing these climate people are always talking about called the COP, the C-O-P? What is it and why is it so important this year? Mary, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to talk today about the road to COP26, but we want to make sure everybody's on the same page of a basic understanding of what the COP even is. There have been 25 of them so far. Mary, would you just give us a little bit of a, a kind of 101? What is COP? How does it work? And in particular, what is an NDC? Well, briefly, the UN always makes things complicated because it's a very large organization. And at the Rio summit in 1992, the framework agreement, the Convention on Climate Change, decided to have an annual year where parties would commit to address the problem of climate change and reduce emissions. And they decided that the countries most responsible, the industrialized countries, should do more. And over time, they developed a Kyoto Protocol with some legal targets. But before the Paris Agreement, they changed that a bit and said every country has to decide to commit to do more, both to reduce emissions and to work on adaptation to climate change. So even you know the smallest countries that don't have large emission, they, they also joined in. And that's what we call the nationally determined contributions, because they're actually determined by the countries themselves. And that makes it more difficult to get real ambition, because countries tend to only want to do what they can comfortably get away with. And so 
it's really important that we have pressure from civil society and pressure from developing countries who are the most affected and who are in the front line and indigenous peoples who are in the front line urging that we don't have much time and it's very urgent. You mentioned developing countries and the Paris Agreement. And before we look forward to the November negotiations in in Glasgow, I think it's worth looking back at at Paris. And you were very involved, Mary, in, in the Paris Agreement. And developing countries played a really critical role in the targets that were set in Paris. Would you just brief us on that history before we start to look forward? I will, Catherine, because I think it's really important that we understand how much we owe to the moral voice and the urgency of the small island states, of the poorest countries, of indigenous peoples worldwide, and of civil society worldwide. I was the special envoy of the Secretary General uh, before Paris on, on climate change. So I was a, you know, a close witness to all of this. And I saw in meetings before Paris how Tony de Brum, the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands, tiny atolls off the Pacific, used his moral voice to tell other ministers from the United States, from Europe, from the, you know, do you want my country to go under? Do you want us not to have any future? This is really urgent. It's affecting us now. We need 1.5 degrees to be put into the goal in Paris. And in the negotiations in Paris itself, a high ambition coalition was formed. It included Europe and the United States, but it was actually led by the Marshall Islands. Another example of real moral force. And it was how we got the new goal in Paris, that we would stay well below two degrees and work for 1.5 degrees. The problem was the scientists globally had never studied this. And they didn't know what the difference was between a world of two degrees of warming and a world of 1.5 degrees. So the Paris Agreement asked them to study this. And they came out with this most important report in October 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on climate change, which is the global scientists. And they actually said, now that we've studied it, we know that there is a huge difference between two degrees of warming and 1.5 degrees. Quite bad things could happen in that period. The Arctic ice might disappear, the coral reefs might disappear, and the permafrost, and there's a lot of permafrost around the Arctic, could melt and throw up not just carbon, but also methane, which in the short term is even more uh, dangerous than carbon. So they said quite seriously and very sharply that the whole world needs to stay at 1.5 degrees. And that has increased the urgency enormously because they said we have to reduce by 45% our carbon emissions by 2030. So now with COP26 in Glasgow, the whole focus is on 2030 and how countries will um, have the ambition to make sure we'll have a safe world for the future for our children and grandchildren. That's really helpful history, Mary. I f- and it's recent history. It's not like it's very old. And it really helps all of us understand where we're at, right? When we're talking about these nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, to the Paris Agreement, 
what we've just seen, and I'd love to get your views on it, is that a lot of countries are lining up with that IPCC report, right? They're saying if the IPCC says we got to cut 45% to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, well, hey, that's the kind of ambition we need to be seeing globally. And so I'm sure you saw, I'm sure you watched, given how excited you are about climate like we are, the virtual summit that was held last week including on Earth Day by President Biden, where he invited world leaders to come via the internet during the pandemic to the United States to talk about their plans on climate change. And what's your take about how things went down at that big summit last week? It was a very important summit, in particular because it was important to prove that the United States was back in a leadership position. Uh, President Obama and President Xi of China had kind of pressed each other, a kind of peer pressure of each other before the Paris Agreement. And that was also important, as well as the work of developing countries. So it it was really important that President Biden convened um, over 40 uh, countries to come together and corporations and others in order to commit to more ambition leading up to the conference um, in Glasgow um, in November. And the United States committed, for example, to reducing its emissions by 50 to 52% on 2005 degree levels. This is quite technical, but let me put it this way. Before that, it had been 26%. Following the US example, if you like, Japan cut by 46 to 50% by 2030, and that's up from 30%. Canada went to 40 to 45%, up from 30%. And they also increased climate finance, in particular, President Biden said they would double climate finance. That is extremely important because that's the other side, uh, to help developing countries to be able to adapt to the climate shocks because the injustice of climate change is that the poorest countries and communities and small island states and indigenous peoples are affected disproportionately and are not responsible. So you also need the climate finance to, to fund adaptation. And both of those were helped by this recent Earth Day summit of the Biden-Harris administration. So that's very welcome because the Trump years were very bleak for those of us who know how urgent the climate issue is. Yeah. And for those of us living in the United States, they were they were tough years, right? <laughs> but sure. it's funny, early in the Trump administration, somebody interviewed me and they said, you know, what do you think the Trump administration will be for on climate? And of course, it was terrible. And I thought that. But I said, you know, Trump is for four years. Climate change is forever. And we've got to keep our eye on that longer term prize. You know, there will be times when there are leaders in some countries who are not going to lead. And then we got to think globally, how do we keep making progress? So I really agree with your take on the last week's meeting, the 50 percent target from the Biden administration which hopefully will be implemented through the American Jobs Plan passing Congress, you know, that's super exciting. And so this is all kind of on the road to another COP, another big global meeting. They just keep happening in a good way. And so looking ahead to November, if you had a magic wand, all right, we are endowing you with the power of magic. What would be the best outcome that you could sort of hope for at this meeting? And what do you think it would take to reach that outcome? And what are some of the barriers to getting there? We do need much more ambition, frankly. This was a good step. We need far more climate finance. So my wish, if I could have that magic wand, would be that all countries would commit 
to what's called a long-term goal. They would commit to be net zero emissions by 2050 and then work backwards to 2030 and then backwards from 2030 to 2025, 2023 to now um, to say exactly what they would do in terms of reducing emissions, in terms of climate finance uh, from the countries that built their economies on fossil fuel and benefited from that and must help now the developing countries not to go that route, but to adapt also to the shocks of climate change and also nature-based solutions. We have another framework this year in China, in Kunming, um, the UN Conference on Biodiversity, and we want to protect 30% of the land and 30% of the oceans in order to re restore biodiversity. So I have an image of a world that will be so much better by 2030. I love that world that we must be hurrying towards because it will be much healthier, it will be greener, cities will be a joy to be in, the countryside will be a joy to be in because we will be valuing, rewilding, valuing biodiversity. The jobs will be different jobs and there'll be jobs available as we're learning through COVID, you know, working from home can be working from different places because of the digital age. It will be accelerated in the time of no fossil fuel and therefore no health deaths from fossil fuel. The deaths are enormous. I mean, we're, we're very conscious of COVID and the deaths, but 8.7 million people die every year from air pollution, indoor or outdoor. Indoor, it's women cooking on open fires because they don't have access to clean cooking. And outdoor, of course, it's vehicles, it's manufacturing, it's fumes from fossil fuel. All of that will be gone. Imagine, it'll be reduced by 45% by 2030, and it'll be gone by 2050. I can't wait, because I won't be around. But, you know, I can't wait for my children and grandchildren. I love that vision of 2030, and I want to run to that time period too. I love that. I'll pass it back to Catherine for the next question. Mary, we shared with the audience a little bit about the very many hats that you have worn and, and do wear. And one of my personal favorites of your current hats is that you co-host a podcast called Mothers of Invention that focuses on women's leadership in climate. And I think you have the best tagline maybe ever that climate change is a man-made problem with a feminist solution. And I'm curious if you could unpack that tagline a bit. And how does that apply when we think about international climate negotiations and whose voices are, are present and really shaping the discourse? Well, Catherine, I always explain when we say that climate change is a man-made problem that requires a feminist solution, that man-made is generic. It includes all of us. And a feminist solution definitely includes as many men as possible. I'm very clear on that. And I learned to my dismay at my first conference on climate in Copenhagen how scientific and technical and frankly male um, it was. I was really shocked. And the following year, with a number of other women leaders, we formed a network on a network of women leaders on gender and climate. And we worked with a wide constituency of women who'd been working hard, but these women ministers were the heads of their delegations. We got them to determine that they would work towards a gender action plan and that they would invite grassroots women and indigenous women and frankly young women into their delegation to be there at the table. And you know, over the years, up to Paris and indeed the, the cops after Paris, I saw the difference it made. It stopped the room when you had this woman of passion 
talking about what difference it made in her village, which was totally destroyed. She had to bring the women together. They had to become resilient and how hard it was. And she wanted those delegates to wake up and realize that this was urgent. And you could see their faces, these technocrats from countries, you know, who lived in cities and who, you know, were, were wordsmiths about the words, um, but didn't really live the reality in the way that these women were saying. And that had a huge impact in you know, really helping to get a sense that this is about people, that this is, we have to have a people-centered approach. We have to have a justice approach if we're going to really meet the urgency. And what I, what, the other thing I love about Mothers of Invention, which is a tribute to Maeve Higgins. Maeve Higgins was eight years old when I was elected president. I didn't know her before we were brought together to do this podcast, but she's a very successful comedian in New York. She's made films. She writes for the New York Times and other prestigious outlets. And because she's a comedian, she only half respects me on the show. And that's the humor. And I have learned, I probably learned it later in life than I wanted to, but I now understand it. Humor is a great communicator. It really is. If you could, you know, I, I knew when I, was, when I was living in the United States, a lot of young people took their news from Saturday Night Live and the day show, the daily show and, and so on. Um, Humour is a great way to communicate. Mm. I remember you telling me that, Mary, I think during Climate Week a couple of years ago, you know, don't don't be afraid to to use humour. And I think it's such a great, <laughs> it is such a great insight because climate change is inherently deeply serious. People get a little bit daunted about not knowing the science, not understanding the policy, feeling maybe guilty, et cetera, et cetera. And I think humor is a great way to sort of open things up and put people at ease. So I love the relationship that you and Maeve have as co-hosts. And I, I think on this point around... And of course, we've been joined. We were joined for the last session by Tamali from Sri Lanka, which was also important because our focus, and it increasingly was on the stories of women from the south of the United States and the south of the world, if you like, um, and just the wonderful ways in which they were working with nature, the, the, particularly indigenous women, you know, how much we can learn from how to live sustainably with nature. It's really important um, that we imbibe that now and work towards that kind of sustainability and do it with the sort of connections that they feel deeply with all the other species and with the mountains and the rivers and the air. You know, there's a huge wisdom there. Yeah. And I think this point that you've made around centering human beings, centering justice, centering equity in the conversation. And when I think about the role that women have played in that, I also think about all of the young women and even young girls who are stepping up as climate activists and playing that role of, you know, an insistent and ferocious moral voice in this moment. And I'm I'm curious if you anticipate activists playing an even more critical role this year than in COPs past. I do. And, I, and actually, I love this intergenerational communication because... The elders, and I'm now chair of the elders who were brought together in 2007 by Nelson Mandela to help to further his legacy after his death and or before and after his death. And we understand that role of young climate activists 
I mean, yes, Greta Thunberg, but there are millions of them. There are thousands of them. There's, you know, the CEO Connor in Ireland who brought me together last Friday, Fridays for Future, um, on Zoom uh, with Naomi Klein and others um, to talk to the young climate activists. There's uh, Shia Bastida, a um, young Mexican who's studying now in the United States, a wonderful leader on climate, and so many others. And what has happened is the dialogue has changed completely. You know, when I was growing up, it was a one-way traffic. You listened to your elders respectfully, probably with your head a little bit down, and the elder communicated wisdom, and you absorbed it. That's not the case now. It's a two-way, because young people are digitally smart, they're connected, they've read the science, they understand, and they do feel that connection with those who are more disadvantaged, if I could put it that way, more affected by climate change. They feel a love, they feel a connection. They feel citizens of this world that is not coping well, and they're asking us to do a better job. And they're absolutely right. And they're saying, don't listen to us. We're just children. Listen to the science over and over again. That's what they say. And it's so smart. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of these young uh, women, young girls activists in the United States. We've interviewed some of them on our show. And I have just a little funny story uh, about one that both Catherine and I know pretty well, Alexandria Villasenor. She is, I think, 14, 15 now. I've lost track. And um, she's 15. (laughs) Time does move, unfortunately or fortunately. And, uh, you know, she's great. She started a little, or I shouldn't say a little, she started an organization called Earth Uprising, which is a global organization that's helping youth kind of get plugged into climate. And I was on Sunday working on some activism and we were doing a letter and we were at 149 groups signed on to her letter. And obviously we wanted 150. And I thought, I wonder if I ask Alexandria and I messaged her and within 30 seconds, she'd already done it. It took her no time whatsoever. And I feel like that's the spirit of the Gen Z climate activists. You know, they don't have time to mess around. They're just here to make things happen. They're doing their own activism, their own events, their own organizing. And they really bring such power and urgency in the way that they talk about these issues. And I think it's really transformed the whole climate movement globally, not just, you know, in the United States or in developed countries, but all around the world. And we need them because we're not on track. Speaking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> speaking of um, actors that we need to join the party in a helpful way, we've talked about the role of governments, we've talked about the role of civil society and activists, but of course, corporations will also be at the COP in November. And I'm curious, Mary, what your thoughts are about kind of the most helpful role that corporations can play and how we make sure that we're not getting greenwashed uh, along the way. It is really important that corporations take on their appropriate responsibility and see this as being something they must take personally and get involved in. And there are leading companies who are doing that. I'm involved and linked with the B team of business leaders. And before the Paris Agreement in January 2015, Uh, The B team made a commitment uh, that they would be um, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and do it the climate justice way. And uh, Christiana Figueres said at the time, this is fantastic to have some business leaders who are genuinely committing. Now, I've watched them push each other since then with peer pressure. There have been hiccups on the way, but they're still very committed. They're not greenwashing, but there are a lot of others 
including you know, fossil fuel companies who champion the bit of green they're doing. They spend more on advertising than they spend on the green uh, work they're doing, uh, the, the green projects they have, um, some of them. That's a, that's a kind of greenwashing. And if companies uh, seem to be good in what they're doing, but are part of corporate associations that are lobbying and leveraging to try to prevent the, the steps we need to take. And that's greenwashing as well. That, that, you know, so we have to be very careful. The other group that we need to factor in, Catherine, is cities. I'm really pleased that so many cities, including happily in the United States, are really giving leadership, are committing to be zero by 2050, um, um, net emissions, and also you know, with projects. And, and cities are working together, the C40 group of cities, etc. And we're seeing in corporations very good groupings as well of climate action um, corporations. But there is the danger of the greenwashing. There's also the danger, frankly, of offsetting as being the solution, meaning we will plant endless trees. And I've seen bad examples of trees being planted as a bulk planting in a country with no regard for nature, no regard to whether the trees will do well or badly just because they can be counted as part of offsetting a climate responsibility. So we we need to watch all these things. Absolutely. You know, we did a whole episode on that and we're right there with you. There's there's great things to be doing with nature, but, you know, we got to get off fossil fuels. That's the number one thing. So we're coming in the last five minutes here of our conversation and we want to do a little rapid round. It'll be fun. And Catherine and I will subject ourselves to it as well. So don't worry. We're not just throwing you in the hot seat here. And so we've got a bunch of quick questions that we'll each try to answer quickly, and I'll I'll moderate the thing. All right, you guys ready? Ready, Mary? Okay, ready, yeah. Catherine? Okay. Ready as ever. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hesitantly ready. Okay, so first question, who is a global climate leader inspiring you right now? Catherine, you're first. Mary Robinson. Oh, oh. too easy. Okay, Mary, your turn. <laughs> Uh, I, I think it's the cl- young climate leaders. I'm going to mention again uh, C. O'Connor. Uh, she's about 15. She's from Cork in Ireland. She is so committed. And I would never have understood like she does, uh, you know, how, um, how individuals can and must make a difference. And that's what the climate, young climate activists are doing. And they're the ones who inspire me. Yeah. And I know I'm glad to say quite a number of them now, uh, personally by name and know what they're doing. I'll give you a real answer, Leah. For me- <laughs> I will add uh, Maria Alejandra Escalante, who leads the climate justice work for Frida, the Young Feminist Fund. And we just got to do uh, a roundtable of two, <laughs> more of a bistro-sized roundtable for uh, Time Magazine's climate issue. And I just think that the work that they're doing is fantastic. And I really encourage folks to look that up online. And Maria shares some really important insights about the intersection of gender and climate through the lens of the pandemic. All right. For me, I'm working really hard on a clean electricity standard, and I've got great allies in an organization I just met a couple months ago called the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. And I got to give a shout out to my besties, Quentin, Jamie, and Mike, who every day come up with something that they can do to try to advance the cause. And there's people like that everywhere, you know, and it's so inspiring. Okay, next question. Something you've recently read that's informing your thinking. It could be climate. It could be something else. Mary, you're up. I recently read an op-ed 
by the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros from Ethiopia, who happens to be a friend of mine. It was an un, it was an article in the New York Times, and for a UN official, it was a really angry article about the unfairness of the access to vaccines, the vaccine nationalism. Uh, you know, he, he really spoke angrily, and he's right. And this is also related to the climate issue. If the poorest countries cannot get access to vaccines, we're seeing these scenes in India. It breaks my heart to see, you know, such distress, such death un unnecessarily if we would collaborate as a world and provide access to vaccines. So, you know, I see that as being you know, really also part of this whole issue that we're talking about. We need multilateral cooperation, solidarity, and in particular at the moment, we need to have equitable access to vaccines. We mustn't have intellectual property rights being used. I'm very glad that the Biden administration is moving in the right direction and sympathetic to waiving uh, intellectual property rights. It's Europe and the UK that are resisting and I've written an op-ed about that, and I've written a letter with a number of other heads of state to Biden commending him for pressure to allow the South to become a major manufacturer. India is a manufacturer, but unfortunately um, exported most of the vaccines and now has a crisis. This is a very, very real issue. Absolutely. All right, Catherine, what about you? Something you're reading? I just read Adrian Marie Brown's small book called we Will Not Cancel Us, which I think is a really important one for anyone who's in or near movement space right now about how we engage with one another and how we move forward together. Okay, and my turn, really rapid fire, that Harvard study that shows that 8 million people are dying every year from air pollution. That is hugely transformative to my thinking. I already thought air pollution was bad. Now I think it's really bad. Okay, we're in the last 30 seconds. So the last question is, climate solution that's capturing your imagination. You got like two words. Mary, what's a climate solution you're excited about? Uh, it's, it's people power. It's the movements, um, climate activists. Catherine. It's got to be the clean energy standard, Leah. <laughs> we got to have it. Oh, the clean electricity standard. That's my pick, too. That's our main passion project right now. Well, that brings us to the end of our live episode. Thank you so much to Mary for being our guest today. This was a lot of fun. We learned so much about the international arena. We greatly appreciate all your focus on equity and justice and ambition. It's so powerful out there in the world. You are a force for good. So thanks for joining us on our first live episode of A Matter of Degrees. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Leah. And thank you, Catherine. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. Extra special thanks to Mary Robinson and Bloomberg Green for making this episode possible. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Aboaji, and Stephen Lacey produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak-Sono. The short was designed by Carl Spurzum. And we'll be back soon with another live episode. And then season two. So stay tuned.